Do any of you recognize that prayer that I just prayed? Have you heard that prayer before? I, I wonder because I actually got that from the man that served as your interim for several years, John Schuler. Um, he gave me that prayer, gosh, it's got to be 27 or 28 years ago now. Um, I heard him pray it. It's an adaptation, a, a sort of a generalizing adaptation of the Collect for St. Bartholomew's Day. He prayed it at a teaching session he did at the cathedral in Orlando, Florida, where I was. Um, and uh, I thought, that's the best prayer before a sermon. And I've prayed it every sermon since then for the past, whatever it is, 27 years. But anyway, your predecessor um, and my dear friend John Schuler, I owe him that uh, for that prayer. Uh, delighted to be here with you all this morning. Beth and I um, are really enjoying our time here. This is a beautiful place. Um, I, I don't know if you know how well, just how great you have it. Um, life is good here at Christ the King. Uh, and this is a great morning for you. Um, in spite of the rain, actually through the rain, I mean, God is providing for all of our needs through this rain this morning, and so though we might have preferred a sunny day with lunch out under the oaks, um, this is a, a, a beautiful morning for the earth, it's a beautiful morning um, for all of the creation, it's a beautiful morning for Christ the King uh, here in Pauly's Island. Roger, I am here to institute your ministry to install you as rector of this congregation, and I am really eager to see what the Lord has in store for you, for your family, for this parish as the days and weeks and months unfold. I'm also excited for what your ministry in our diocese is going to look like. The very first time that your name came across my desk and from the verse conversation that we had, oh, blessed Zoom, um, <laughs> from then until now, I have been eager for this moment when I would get to install you as the rector of this congregation. Last evening, Beth and I were delighted to meet Cindy and Audrey and Hugo, and it's my fervent hope and prayer that this new venture that y'all are undertaking will prove to be ever much a blessing for them as it is for you and even more for all of the rest of you. So, Christ the King, your new rector. Father Revel, your new parish. At this, mo <laughs> <That's right. laughs> At this moment, the scriptures appointed for this occasion, we have been directed to St. Paul, to his epistle to the Romans, and specifically to that great chapter, chapter 12, where Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this morning in Paul's epistle to the Romans, we come to one of Paul's sort of uh, trademark normal epistolary movements, that word, therefore. Uh, whether it's in the letter to the Philippians or the Ephesians or the Corinthians or the Colossians, in every time he begins, then there's a therefore, and then he continues. His standard move is theology first, 
the theology of God's mercy towards us in his saving us by grace through the redemptive power of his son, and then to the implications of that mercy for our lives as his followers. Mercy, therefore, our lives. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. And here, we hear Paul say, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. What are these mercies upon which Paul is basing his appeal, his therefore? Well, if I could sum up the previous 11 chapters of this epistle, it would go something like this. God gives us mercy even when wrath is our due. He sent his son to die for us while we were still his enemies. God embraces all who come to him in faith regardless of their work. God has come to us in his spirit to enliven us and to help us. And God is always faithful to his promises both to the Jews and to Gentiles. That is the first 11 chapters of this epistle. And then he says... So I appeal to you, therefore. And what is his appeal? His appeal that we, is that we would die to ourselves. Paradoxically, he says, I want you to be a living sacrifice. And in that turn of phrase, living sacrifice, he calls to mind Jesus' teaching recorded for us in Matthew chapter 2 where, where Jesus says to his disciples, if you will lose your life for my sake, that's the sacrifice, then you will find it. Somehow, in sacrificing our lives, we actually discover our lives. And so while most sacrifices result in death, our sacrifice of ourselves, our giving of ourselves, is actually the opening of the door to our real lives. So then what is Paul's basic assumption? What needs to happen to us so that our lives can be a living sacrifice. Well, his basic assumption here is that something has gone terribly wrong in our minds, in the way that we think. And so he says, if you will, he looks at our, our, our minds, our, our way of perceiving all of reality, um, everything from who God is and if there is a God and all those sorts of things. And he says, as I, as I look at our minds, uh, the check engine light has come on. We've got a problem. And this harkens all the way back to when Paul, in chapter 1, was beginning with the bad news in order that we could really come to appreciate the good news. He starts that by telling us that we are completely out of sorts with God. And he says, since you didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave you up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then he says, you were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, contentiousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Your gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. As if there's not already enough evil out there, we have the capacity to invent new ways, to think up new evil things to do. You're disobedient to your parents. You're foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You see, when your mind has been debased, all sorts of terrible things come from that. 
And so Paul is letting us know that we have these debased minds. It's just the way things are since the fall when God's mercy has not intervened. But Paul has just been telling us that God's mercy has intervened for us on our behalf so that we could be restored and made right and then our lives could be living sacrifice. And as living sacrifices, Paul says, now don't waste that. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't continue to live in that laundry list of horrible things that people do to each other because that's what being conformed in your debased mind looks like and you have been transformed. So be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If in our minds we deny God and we deny God's authority over us, if we don't realize that our call is to obediently follow, a dear friend of mine often says that obedience is the tether to omniscience. Which is to say, a lot of times we look out at things and we don't understand, we're not sure why it would make sense in order to do what God commands, but God does know. He knows everything. And so if we simply say, although I don't understand, I will follow and I will obey, we are tied to the goodness of God. And in that transformation, if we want to be truly disciples who are conformed to the image of Christ, then what is required is the renewing of our minds. You see, we we don't just come into the world already thinking after the thoughts of God. We are, each one of us, born self-ish, which is to say, for every single one of us, the horizon has a fixed point. That fixed point is me, right? Each one of us sees the world based on our own interest. And if we are born this way, then Jesus calls us to die to those selves. It doesn't make sense to us that in order to fully live, we must die to that very fundamental reality of who we are, the most selfish sorts of people in the world. But we can be, by God's mercy, transformed in our minds so that we begin to see everything anew. So the question is, where will that transformation of mind, that renewal of mind that Paul sets before us, where will that happen? How will that happen? Well, it happens here, in this place, in God's church, with God's people, united together around the ministry of word and sacraments. We are called to the gospel, and every time we gather together, around the truth of the gospel, we're reminded again and again, daily, weekly, year after year, that our minds are to be transformed away from the sorts of thinking that results in uh, gossip and slandering and boasting and disobedient to parents and foolish, faithless, heartless, to knowing the will of God, knowing what is good, acceptable, perfect, At the end of the day, if we want to know what God's will is, all we have to ask is, what does God command? And God's commandments are summed up like this, that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your 
mind, which is being renewed, and in that renewal, we're being transformed, and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Roger, this people has been entrusted to your care as their rector that you might love them. At the end of the day, that is your call. To, in God's grace and renewed by his mercy, love this people. And in so doing, lead them. Now, a caveat here. Most of us clergy, anybody who's become clergy in, I don't know, the last 15 or 20 years, have been told that leadership is what matters most of all. Not at all until you first love. I had a young priest come to me years ago, um, uh, which sort of acknowledged the fact that I was already an old priest. Um, But he came to me and he was frustrated. He had planted a church and he was trying, he had this vision for them that he was, he thought, given by God. And as he tried to get people to come along with him, they resisted. They weren't on board with him. Uh, It was sort of trouble at every point. And he wanted to ask me what, he asked, what am I doing wrong? And I asked him simply, I said, here's what I want to know. Which do you love most? The vision that you think you've been given or the people that you know God has given you. And if you don't love them first and foremost, why would they ever want to follow any vision that you might have? So your role as leader of this congregation is an important role, but it is secondary, always secondary, to your love for them. Because it's love, which is the commandment of God, which is what our minds are being transformed into, because of God's mercy. You are called to be among this people to teach, to teach them to know what God's will is, what is the good and perfect and acceptable. You are called among them to exhort them. You're called among them to serve them, to bind up the brokenness, and to paint a picture for them of the glorious redemption to which we are being called. You the people of Christ the King. You too are called to love. You are called to love Roger and Cindy and Audrey and Hugo. They have been given to you to serve you. And you have been given to them to care for them. They have been called. They have left their former home, they have come to take up life among you, to move in among you. Your job is to care for them, to make sure that they are given what they need in order to be free to love and lead you into this transforming love of God. So altogether, Christ the King Parish, Roger Revel as your new rector, Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Don't treat each other that way. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds that together you might discern the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.